inspiration. You were there to help me out. You just saw the need and said, can I help you? We learn a lot from watching other horses and watching other riders. I'm Julie Goodnight, and thank you for listening to my podcast about horse training and equestrian sports. Be sure to hit subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss a single episode. And if you get a chance, I'd appreciate it if you'd give me a review and a rating. It helps me out a lot, and it helps other horse lovers just like you find this podcast. Since the last time we recorded, I've been here at home just finding a new rhythm to life with business travel taken off the table for me. It's been an interesting time to just sort of reformat, reboot, and kind of find a new rhythm. And I started early on uh, in the beginning of the shutdown seven weeks ago, promising to bring you a daily dose of horsemanship homework every day and thinking I was only going to be doing that for a couple of weeks. But it's been seven weeks and we have now over 50 daily lessons that we've put up on social media, both Facebook and YouTube. It's available on my website. Just go to juliegoodnight.com slash daily doses, and you'll be able to find groundwork lessons, arena lessons, and what I came to call living room lessons. We've talked about behavior. We've talked about spooking and training. I've done a lot of Q&A. It's been a really fun time for me. I'll be honest, it's been a lot of work. We've been doing video production almost every single day and bringing that free to anyone. We've been getting a lot of great feedback. A lot of 4-H leaders, homeschoolers and the like are really enjoying these daily lessons we've been providing. So be sure to check that out. And I've, I've stayed busy here at home, not only riding my own horses and working in the garden and fishing and, and riding my bike, and we've been doing some trail riding. So I've been having a great time being at home a little uh, more than normal. And I've also been kept busy with my online programs. I have even more online interactive students now than I ever have before. And so many of you are staying at home with your horses, so you've been busy, and that keeps me busy as you complete your assignments and you report back to me and ask questions. So that's that's been a big part of my day as well, working with our online training platforms. So you can check that out at, at juliegoodnight.com um, academy programs. And then the, the newest thing around here for us is in just a few days, I'll be headed up to Denver with the horse trailer to pick up a four-year-old gelding that I am taking in foster training. He's a horse that has come into the rescue pipeline and he needs a little help to he he ought to be a perfectly adoptable horse he should be he's a he's a fine healthy sound young horse the only thing he's lacking is training so i'm going to put about oh i don't know 60 90 days of training on him whatever it takes to get him to a state where he's ready for a, a permanently adopting family so we're going to make a social media campaign out of that. You'll be able to follow the story of Doc Gunner 
on YouTube and Facebook, as well as on my own website. So stay tuned for more information on that. If you're subscribed to my monthly email newsletter, you'll get updates on when we'll be releasing episodes of The Journey of Doc Gunner and see how he does in his training. And uh, if you're not receiving two, two email newsletters from me a month, then you're not on my mailing list. So go to juliegoodnight.com and you can just click the link to sign up and, for the free newsletter and you'll stay on top of all our new releases on the journey of Doc Gunner. So check that out. Also been working on developing some new short courses. We've already released one on building confidence with horses. It's been a huge success. People are really appreciating the resources, the training resources, and the program I've put together, a program of self-study for you on that. And the second one that we're putting the final touches on now is on spook proofing your horse. So I've talked about that subject a lot in the podcast and we've gotten a lot great of great feedback from you listeners. So thank you for that. So we decided to actually make a formal short course out of the uh, de-spooking process and we plan to be releasing that shortly. So the silver lining for me of all the stay-at-home situations that have been going on is that I've been able to actually complete a lot of back burner projects that I've been wanting to do for a long time. We've been developing a tremendous amount of educational content for horse lovers and I've been enjoying it and I've been getting a lot of great feedback. So that's been fun. I look forward to get back, getting back on the road. I look forward to teaching clinics and doing public demonstrations again. And I know uh, one day that will happen, but for now, I'm just happy to be at home, enjoying the horses, enjoying the weather, and having a little extra time for myself every now and then. For today's podcast, I'd like to share with you my top trail riding tips. We're going to talk about preparation, planning and organization for your trail rides, and most importantly, we'll talk about trail etiquette how to make sure that you and everyone on the ride stays safe and has a great time. Plus, I've got some brand new questions to answer about trail riding straight from our listeners in the What the Hey Q&A segment at the end of this podcast. Trail riding season is fast approaching, and whether you go out for a few hours or a few days at a time, whether you're going to take one or two trail adventures this year, or one or two every week. I want to share some of my tips that I've learned through the years. I've used to operate a trail riding operation here in the mountains of Colorado. I've done a lot of horse packing, extended wilderness packing trips with horses up in Wyoming and down here in Colorado as well. So I've been a few hours out on the trail in much of it in a professional capacity. But also we like to trail ride with a small group of friends on occasion. Here we live in the you know beautiful high mountains of Colorado. So trail riding is of course uh, one of our uh, great pleasures. So 
I've been experienced at trail riding throughout my life, and I've learned a lot about safety procedures from the Certified Horsemanship Association. It's a nonprofit organization that promotes safety and effectiveness in horsemanship. And I actually was one of the editors involved in putting together their trail riding and trail guiding manual. And it's an excellent resource uh, book for those of you that are super serious about trail riding up into camping and wilderness packing with your horses. So it's up to the highest levels of wilderness packing. It's a great resource of information um, for you there. But So some of the things I'm going to be sharing with you here, you might read about in, in procedures in, in that trail riding manual. And some of the stuff I want to share with you just has more to do with my personal experience through the years of trail riding in the Colorado Rockies. So I realize everybody's trails are different and certainly the terrain that you ride in is a huge consideration for how you prepare and how you train your horse and the skills that you both need and the equipment and all of that. So, and going out on an hour or two trail ride, you know, around the farm, leaving out straight from the farm on a, you know, nice afternoon is quite a different trip from going on a multi-day camping trip with your horses 200 miles away or going even uh, more complicated would be going on a pack trip with camping trip with horses without a vehicle assist. So all of these things are, you know, from the, the most low level, basic kind of trail riding all the way up to the most advanced. And I, I don't want to really get so much into the skills, but just in terms of some of the general concepts that you need to think about, some of the theories that you need to think about. So first, let's talk about preparation. You know, a lot goes into preparing a horse to be a good trail riding horse that can endure the arduous conditions generally that are going to be involved with packing a rider, particularly around the mountains all day long. So first of all, we need to talk about the physical conditioning of the horse. So, so presumably we're starting with a sound and healthy horse that may not be in tip-top physical condition. So first of all, there's musculature and aerobic capacity that has to be conditioned into the horse by getting exercise every day. And we can start with a short amount of time, 10, 15 minutes of trotting, let's say, and building up, you know, two hour long rides. But the important thing there is going to be to work that horse every single day so that his conditioning, and by, I, I mean, you know, five, six days a week, I don't mean seven days a week, but even if you just, you know, can get that horse trotting, moving around for 10 or 15 minutes a day, he's probably going to be improving his musculature and hardening up, fit, fitting up a little bit. You want to make sure you're increasing that horse's aerobic capacity. And the only way to, to do that is to long trot him or work him for a suspended period of time until he's breathing really hard. And then, of course, we're going to let him rest and recover and then sort of bump the limits on that aerobic capacity so that, and you know, depending on the fitness level of where you're starting on that horse, like I said, you may be starting with only five or 10 minutes of trotting and building up to something more. But if you have a horse that's already in a reasonable condition and you're starting with 10 or 15 minutes of trot, 
you know, within a couple of weeks, I want to have that up to 20 or 30. So we're going to just be bumping up the the number of minutes every week that, that we're working the horses. It's not... It's it's not dissimilar from training a human athlete in terms of the conditioning. But keep in mind that it's going to take at least 60 days before you start seeing a result in a conditioning program and probably realistically 90 days before we can really accomplish a, a better level of fitness in a horse. So that that is not a short-term proposition. It's something we want to be planning, you know, two to three months in advance and, and being able to put a little time into it every single day. Now, beyond conditioning the horse physically, we have to also train the horse for the skills that are needed for the type of riding you're going to do. And so, that may involve, for instance, going up and down hills. It may involve going through water or over timber or on rocky terrain. It may involve riding in a large group of horses. It may involve riding with strange horses. It may involve carrying saddlebags or other kinds of gear. It may involve being tied up to high lines, and it may involve being tied up overnight to trailers or lines. It may, it may involve hobbling. So all of these are different little skill sets that have to be trained into the horse. And again, that takes time. And so breaking down the type of, of riding that you're going to be doing and understanding the conditions, you know, is your horse going to have to travel? Is does that mean trailer loading? And does that mean riding long distances in trailers? Does that mean s- sleeping in a strange, you know, stall at night? So all of these skills are first going to need to be trained into the horse. And then the horse is going to have to practice these things in smaller amounts and different situations in different locations. So in other words, if I've got a horse at home I can condition him all day long, you know, for months on end, and he can be in tip-top fit condition. But if he doesn't know how to load and unload the trailer, if he's never been to another location and had to perform, if he's never had to stand tied overnight, you know, that's going to be a huge ordeal for that horse. So we want to make sure that, that when you head out to go on that ride that you've invested a lot of time and energy into and you want to have the best ride of your life, you want to make sure that horse is fully prepared so that you don't have a a behavioral nightmare uh, once you get on the road. So breaking down the skills that are needed, training those skills into the horse, and then actually giving the horse some experience. If he's going to have to travel, load him in the trailer, take him someplace and ride him on a small ride. If he's going to have to be around a bunch of strange horses, introduce them to some environments like that. Go to, you know, I don't know what you can do, but you can go to a clinic. You could go to a horse show or something where any large gathering of horse horses occurs just where he can be around strange horses. Just break that, that part around, you know, riding in a, a, a large group of horses can be really intimidating to horses that have never had that kind of experience. If your horse doesn't want to be in front or doesn't want to be behind or doesn't want to be in the middle. That's going to be a problem. So we have to train those skills into the horse. 
So really sitting down, evaluating where your horse is at now, what kind of skills are going to be needed for the riding that you want to do, and then systematically setting out to train those skills and practice those skills before the actual event comes up. Also, we want to look at beyond just the horse's physical conditioning of his, you know, physical strength, his muscular strength, and his aerobic capacity. We also want to uh, make sure that his feet are going to endure, particularly if you're riding in rocky terrain, you know, what kind of hoof boot situation you have, um, if your horse is shod, is you know, what kind of shape are his feet in, what kind of um, shoes are going to be best in that terrain. So the, you know, the old adage, no feet, no horse, it's no time is that more critical than when you're going out on a long trail ride. You don't want to get all the way out there and have a problem. So want to make sure that you're well equipped and everything's in good shape there. Also, your horse has to get hardened to the saddle and the cinch and the carrying the weight of the rider. So we could have a, a you know, a beautiful halter fit buff horse has, who has been well conditioned. But if he hasn't been wearing a saddle and packing weight on his back for increasing amounts of time leading up to the trail ride, he's going to get back sore. He's going to get cinch sore. Um, you were going to end up with a saddle fit problem you didn't know you had after you've ridden six hours. So we want to make sure that you're getting a lot of saddle time in, you know, practice with the equipment you're going to take on the ride, whether that be saddle bags or pommel bags or whatever. And make sure that you've got just the right pad configuration, breast collar, all that kind of stuff. And you want to use it enough ahead of time to make sure your horse, it's just like if you get a brand new pair of shoes, I don't care how comfortable they are, there's going to be a little bit of a break-in period. And eventually your foot will become used to the pressure points of that shoe and it'll be perfectly comfortable. Well, your horse is kind of the same way with his tack. And so if he hasn't been saddled in a while, and he, if he hasn't had that cinch tightened on him and the, dealt with all the sweaty hair and the, you know, grime and all that stuff sort of hardens your horse, if you will, conditions him to the actual, you know, wearing of the boots, if you will. So make sure you get, you get your horse saddle hardened and uh, really fit for that trail ride so that when you do go out and you're pushing your horse to his limits, he's ready for that. And, and he's, he's able to have a good time himself. Not only, not only is he able to sustain the ride, but, but it's not unpleasant to him either. So in addition to preparing your horse and your equipment, and getting the kind of experience you need on your horse three to two to three months ahead of time. You also want to be planning those trips ahead of time. And I like to sort of make goals, you know, early in the year for, you know, maybe I'm going to do four big trail rides this year. And the first one's going to be half day and we're going to go up in the mountains just sort of for a beginning and introductory trip. 
And then a few weeks later, we're going to go on an all-day ride. And then a few weeks after that, we're going to we're going to go on a two-day camping trip with the horses and take the, the living quarters. So we'll have the horses tied to the trailer. So I got to be working on that, make sure they're comfortable with that. And then finally, we're going to go on a group trail ride with, you know, 20 other riders in the big canyon or whatever at the end of the season. So plan, plan your season out ahead of time. Make sure you're realistic in terms of what you can actually accomplish. Don't shoot the moon. Start small, build slowly. By starting small and having lower expectations, you can sort of make trial runs. You can find out what you're going to leave at home. You can find out what equipment works and doesn't work. You can make sure you sort of have your act together. And in that process, both you and your horse are, are getting invaluable experience along the way. If you, if you try to shoot the moon and planning your trail running season, I want to go on a big adventure every weekend or whatever, you're just setting yourself up for disappointment or you're setting yourself up to overtrain your horse. And neither one of those is a great thing. So make a realistic schedule and make sure that you start small and build and sort of have a grand finale at the end. And, and, and don't, don't shoot for stuff that's, that, is unreasonable. Try to try to keep your goals within reach. Also, I think it's really important to pick the company wisely that you ride in. And I joke about this all the time, you know, don't ride with yahoos. But it's really important. And I think that particularly if you're going in larger groups, let's say with six or more riders, you want to make sure that Everyone in the group has, you know, the same level of safety consciousness. You want to make sure that everyone in the group abides by a known set of etiquette, rules. You want to make sure that you're riding with people that have well-trained and safe horses. You know, one, one horse acting crazy on a trail ride can really affect the other horses and the enjoyment for everybody. So one person that is careless, irresponsible, or just discourteous is, is going to really flavor that trail ride. So I'm really particular about the people that I trail ride with. I think it's um, super important that you have an agreed upon set of rules and etiquette before you even head out on the ride or before you even agree that there's going to be a ride. And so that's the final category of stuff that I wanted to talk to you about in terms of top trail riding tips is simply to let's just talk about trail riding etiquette. Now, horseback riding etiquette in general is something that's we don't do a very good job of teaching to people. You know, we're, re we're really good about getting aggravated to the riders around us that act in foolish ways or discourteous ways. But we're not very good about sharing with people and teaching people what proper etiquette is. And so if you're, if you're in an, a part of the sport that you've been in for a while, so you have a good understanding of what the etiquette is, you shouldn't be afraid to share that with newcomers to the sport. They don't want to be any more embarrassed or shamed about something than you do. 
but they don't know the etiquette. So I want to make sure that if I invite somebody to join our trail riding group, or if I have been invited to join a group, I want to, I want to make sure that we all agree upon and abide by the same set of rules. Now, most of the things that I want to share with you in terms of etiquette are not things that I made up, but that are pretty standardized routines that, that go on everywhere trail riding goes, goes on. So first of all, let's talk about the speed of the ride. If you're going on a trail ride with a group of your friends, it's a good idea to talk ahead of time about what's, what's the maximum speed we're going to go on this ride. Are we just going to walk or are we going to trot as well? And are we going to canter? And who's going to say where we do that and when we do that? And how are we going to go ab- about that? And we want to make sure that nobody just takes off at a canter, that there's communication, that we agree that the footing is safe and all that kind of stuff. If you are a person that likes to really go yeehaw, you know, hellbent for leather on a trail ride, trotting and cantering every single place you can, covering as many miles as you can, that's fine. But you want to trail ride with people that share that goal. If you're a person that wants to stop and smell the roses and mostly walk with a little bit of trotting and, or maybe just walk entirely, you should share that as well. And so not everybody is, is really compatible to ride together. So if you're putting together a little trail riding group, I I would discuss speed early on in the conversation and make sure everybody's compatible in that regard. It is standard operating procedures in all horse operations that when you're riding in a group that you always ride to the lowest level rider in the group. So if we go out on a trail ride and there's eight riders and seven of them knows how to canter, but one of them doesn't, we don't canter. So you ride, the group rides to the ability level of the lowest level rider. And this is a really important safety consideration because that lowest level rider does not have the option to ride to the higher level. And so if you go, and nowhere is this more important than in trail riding, because if you head out on the trail with that same eight group of riders, and you got one that has never cantered before, and the other seven take off at a canter, the eighth person's going to be cantering. They won't be able to stop their horse. And so it's not fair to that person. It's also an unsafe situation. So the same thing happens if you go out on a trail ride in a group of riders and a horse has a behavioral problem, then we can't just like ditch that horse and ride on, right? So we have to all sort of ride to the ability level of that lowest trained horse, as well. So that's just an important safety consideration. I think it's important that you should have a designated leader. Uh, Maybe if you're just a group of friends riding, you want to take turns on who the leader and planner of each ride is going to be. But it's really helpful if one person sort of calls the shots. We're going to meet at the trailhead at 10 a.m., and make sure you pack a lunch and bring your halters and because we're going to tie up and then we'll be back at the trailers by two and we're going to go to this location 
Um, so when one person's organizing all that, it's really helpful. You could take turns at it. Um, if you're going out in a group ride that's that's not a formally organized trail ride and a, a, a leader is not formally appointed, generally what's going to happen is the most experienced person on the trail ride by default becomes the leader. And that's fine. And I... I do that on many occasions, and it's just that when a decision needs to be made, that person needs to be willing to step up and say, I think we should do this, or I think we should do that, or you go in front, or you stay back here, or no, we're not going to canter, or whatever. So it's, it's really helpful if somebody actually is taking charge and making decisions, and in most instances, you want that to be the most experienced person. So also another really important, well, whole series uh, now of trail etiquettes I want to talk to you about that are definitely safety oriented, but also courteous, just simple courteous, being courteous to your fellow riders. And if you're the one that is on the bad end of this situation, it will be so aggravating and irritating that you'll never want to trail ride with with the people breaking this etiquette again. So one thing is that whenever you have to go through a gate, a shut gate, particularly when the, the lead rider or a person has to dismount to open the gate, let's like one place we like to go has a barbed wire gate, a wire gate. And so you can't open that from ha- horseback. So somebody has to dismount you know, undo that rather complicated gate, pull it way back away from the horses, and then all the horses have to ride through, and then you bring your horse through, and then you got to, you know, get that whole contraption closed. So the proper etiquette says that all of the riders should proceed through the gate and then turn around and wait for the rider to bring their horse through, close the gate, and remount. Wait until that rider that was nice enough to get off his horse to open the gate for you gets fully situated on their horse before you just take off down the trail. Now, I've been the one left behind at the gate many, many times trying to wrestle with a gate while the whole group's taking off at a trot. My horse is going crazy and fidgeting all around. Then I got to get on a horse that's all irritated and left behind. So this is not only a safety concern, uh, but it's just, uh, it's just plain good manners. So also, same thing when you're having a mounting situation. So first of all, mounting procedures are kind of important for your horse. So when whenever if a group of us are meeting at a trailhead to go riding, we don't really want to mount until everybody's ready. So you don't want to get on your horse and then the, and then just sit there for 15 minutes. So we want to kind of all hang out until everybody's pretty much ready to go. And then we'll all mount together. And then you stand there and wait. Don't even turn your horse towards the trail, but stand there and wait with the horses all sort of facing each other while everybody mounts and gets comfortable and situated. There's nothing worse than being halfway in the middle of mounting the horse and have a whole group of riders take off and your horse is now trying to take off while you're still uh, trying to get on. 
So we want to make sure that we sort of do that in mass. Everybody mounts at the same time. Everybody waits until everybody's mounted and situated. And then we take off in in an in, in order that makes sense for the horses or makes sense for the trail we're on. So another thing that is really discourteous to the other riders on your trail ride and is really bad thing to train your horse is to allow them to trot up or down hills. And so as we're out on the trail, and let's say we're on a single track trail, it's going through the woods and it's hilly, we're going up and down. What horses like to do is just as they start going down the hill, they just let gravity take over and then they run down the hill and run halfway up the other side and then, you know, then they walk. Or if it's a steep hill ahead of them uphill, they'll trot or, or, or canter up that hill just because it's easier than, than pulling the weight of the rider up at a walk. So it's, it's, very, it's a very bad precedent to set with a trail horse to let him just take off at a trot down a hill or up a hill whenever he wants. It is disobedient behavior. It will lead to greater and greater problems with your horse because you're establishing a precedent that says to the horse, you can change speed whenever you want. And that, you know, not breaking gait is one of the most basic uh, obediences of the horse. So breaking gait is disobedient no matter what. And when you're riding on a trail ride, that is the most obnoxious thing is to have a horse just bust into a lurching trot down this hill, precarious hill, or lunging up a hill on the other side. Now, if we're on a trail ride in a group and we're head to tail and you allow your horse to take off at the trot down the hill, my horse is going to take off down the trot hill. Next thing you know, the one behind me is cantering down the hill. So it's very poor etiquette to allow your horse to do that at all, and especially to do it on, on a group trail ride. More importantly, when we approach a, a challenging obstacle on a trail ride, whether it's a creek crossing or a steep up and down or maybe some timber or something like that, if it's a situation that may cause some horses to be a little bit worried or spooky or whatever, or rush through the obstacle. It's really important to close ranks in your group at the start of the, the difficult place. Keep that group tight together, sort of head to tail with the horses, all moving at a slow pace through the obstacle and not get really strung out. If you get, if you allow your group to get really strung out on the trail and then those horses in the middle or the back come to a frightening place in the trail, they're going to want to rush through and run through uh, to get caught up with the rest of the herd. That's Their instinct's going to kick in there. So you're actually making it more difficult for the riders behind you. So you want to make sure we close ranks uh, before any difficult uh, terrain on a trail and that we keep those ranks tight throughout the difficult section. Another simple etiquette that is super, super important, whether you're trail riding or really in any form mat where you're going to be riding with other horses is that we do not allow horses to fraternize or socialize in any way, shape or form, period. Do not let horses sniff noses. Do not let them 
gesture, posture, communicate with each other. Horses are very easily trained to this. If you enforce it as a strict rule, whenever I'm, I'm handling you, whenever I'm riding you, no interaction with another horse is allowed. No herd behaviors may be displayed. It's very easy to train your horses from a young, young age, uh, but you have to be very strict about it. And it is very, very poor etiquette for you to come on a trail ride with other horses and let your horse come up and, you know, bite the horse in front of him or nose him in the butt or pin, pin his ears back um, or worse. And so also it is very, very poor etiquette to, you know, be running up behind somebody, bumping into them from behind, causing their horse to be irritated, causing their horse to want to kick. Um, so maintaining, you know, a safe distance, a horse length apart is the responsibility of the rider. But look, it's really easy to train horses to act right. Horses naturally know how to rate their speed off another horse. No matter how fast or slow that horse in front of them is going, your horse is perfectly capable of maintaining a proper distance, not getting too far behind and not crowding that horse in front of him either. So you need to just lay down the law and tell him where you expect him to stay. After a few corrections, he ought to do it. You should not have to be constantly nagging him and nagging him if you, you just need to train him right. And which is to keep that distance. If you're not sure what a proper distance is in trail riding, you should be able to look through the ears of your horse and see the hind feet of the horse in front of you on the ground. If you can look through your horse's ears and see the hind feet of the horse in front of you, you are a safe distance. If you can't, you are not a safe distance and you should back off. It's not fair to the horse in front of you uh, for your horse to be acting in such a rude way. And so that is going to reflect on the rider of that horse. So make sure you're not tailgating, riding too close up on. And for heaven's sakes, make sure you would never allow or harshly punish if your horse tries to interact in any way with that horse in front of him or behind you. And I like to remind people that I have very high standards of behaviors for my horses, and they are not allowed to display herd behaviors to other horses when I'm riding. And so if you allow your horse to be so rude as to come up behind my horse and bite him, and my horse reacts, I now have to punish my horse for something you did. And that's not, I'm not going to be happy about that. But I will punish my horse because I need my horses to abide by the highest standards of behavior. And of course, you know, the bottom line is we're talking about rider safety here and horse safety as well, because horses just as easily as people can get hurt when another horse kicks out. So that's a few things for you to think about in terms of trail riding etiquette. Like I said, one of my favorite resource manuals for trail, all things about trail riding from simple hourly trail rides all the way up into extended wilderness pack trips is the Certified Horsemanship Association Trail Guide Manual. It's a hefty manual uh, because it covers all of that information and it's very safety-based. It's very common knowledge uh, uh, over a broad uh, spectrum of the trail riding 
community, uh, both in the United States and Canada. So it's a great resource available for you, and you can find that at CHA.horse. Also, my book on trail riding is called Goodnight's Guide to Great Trail Riding, and it comes with a free DVD on how to train your horse to side pass, and it is a multi-level book also containing different skills for you to work on for your trail horse, such as gate opening and water crossing and hill work and all that. So check that out at shop.juliegoodnight.com. And now it's time for my favorite segment, What the Hey Q&A. We pick a few unique questions from our listeners each month and answer them on the air. If you'd like to submit a question for What the Hey, please go to my Facebook page at Julie Goodnight Horsemanship or email podcast at juliegoodnight.com. Our first question comes from Catherine, and she says... My horse prefers to stroll, not walk with a purpose. He will step up his walk when I ask, but doesn't maintain it for long. How do I reinforce that he needs to keep moving at the pace I want? Well, this is a great question, and it's one that comes up a lot. And, you know, when it comes up the most, here's the the scenario I picture. I picture a big fat quarter horse riding with some tight-wired gated horses. And the gated horses cover so much more ground than a quarter horse is ever going to cover. So it can be really frustrating. But that's kind of an example of the extremes. It could be that you're just riding a really slow, pokey, lazy horse, and you're riding with somebody who has a horse that has a more energetic walk. So That flat-footed marching walk is really a highly valued trait in any horse, but especially a trail horse. However, the bad news, Catherine, is that that is somewhat relative to the horse's nature and less about his training. And so if your horse has a, a really mellow temperament and he's slow moving and reluctant to move forward, this is going to be a really big challenge. And, you know, people often say there are two types of horses, too much woe and too much go. And sometimes that's referred to as push to go, pull to woe. And that's just kind of the way horses are. And so for every person that is complaining about a horse that's lazy and walks too slowly, there's other people complaining that their horses won't stay in a walk and he's going too fast all the time. They're having to hold him back and he's, you know, wants to spook and bolt. And so some of this is just the nature of horses. However, a couple of things for you to think about. First of all, it, the horse does not get to pick the speed you do if you're in charge and the horse is properly trained. So a properly trained horse goes at the speed dictated by the rider without challenge. And so whether that be fast or slow, once I tell the horse to go a certain speed, it is his job to maintain that speed until I tell him to change speeds. But it is my job as the leader to make sure what I ask of the horse is reasonable. And so if, you know, if that horse on a good day walking his fastest isn't going to be able to keep up with 
a Tennessee walking horse, it's unfair of me to expect him to do that. And so, but you can train, you can improve any horse's performance through training by about 15%. And so let's say you have a horse that has, you know, less than great confirmation. And so therefore, because of, let's say he's long backed horse and short hipped. And so he's also got a short neck. And so collection is going to be very difficult for him compared to a horse that is well built for collection. And so that doesn't mean I can't ask that horse to collect. And that doesn't mean that I cannot, through training, make him better at it. But I'm only going to make him about 15% better at it because at some point I'm going to come up against his physical limitations. And so it's the same thing with training that horse to have a nice marching walk. You can't train him to be something he's not by nature, but you can probably improve upon the walk that you have. And so remember, the, I think one of the, the biggest pitfalls that people that have these kinds of problems have fallen into is that you have not been strict in enforcing this basic basic level obedience, which is that you go the speed I say without argument, whether that be slow or fast. And you go the speed I say without me pushing you constantly into it or without me holding you constantly back. You hold the speed. I tell you what speed to hold. And so what happens is when you're on a lazy horse, you ask him to walk and uh, he well, let's let's make it a trot. This will this will be a more clear example. So let's say I, I asked him to trot, and we're trotting along, and I'm just riding a nice little sitting trot, and all of a sudden the horse breaks into a walk because he's lazy and he doesn't he's tired of trotting. And so I would handle that as a gross disobedience because he doesn't get to pick the speed and breaking gait is disobedience. So I would admonish that horse harshly in that moment and let him know that what he did was wrong. If what you did when that horse broke into a walk from the trot was walk for a few steps and then re-cue him to trot, what you did was condone the breaking of gait. So he does it again. There was no penalty. There was no ramification you condoned it because you went along with it by riding two or three strides of walk and then just as normal cueing the horse back to a trot. So he has no way of knowing what he just did was wrong. And so over time, this becomes ingrained in the horse where he he thinks he can just slow down whenever he wants. So that's why it's a basic obedience problem. And you, and you have to go back and address that at, at sort of a base level of training. Now, when you want the horse to extend the walk, uh, when you're walking with a horse, once I ask the horse to go a certain speed, I come into a neutral riding position or a following seat, and that tells the horse to keep at that speed. If he slows down, he's, he's uh, going away from my speed, I need to correct him. But what happens over time with these lazy horses is they start slowing down so you close your legs on him to urge him forward. 
And then the, as soon as you relax, they slow down again. So you close your legs and urge them forward. But as soon as you relax your legs, they slow down again. So pretty soon you have a horse that you're pedaling. That's what we call it. So pedaling means that you have to constantly tell the horse to keep going. And pedaling is so wrong because you're condoning his disobedience and you have in the process become complicit in the disobedience. So you now have this codependent relationship where he's constantly threatening to be disobedient and you're constantly saying, no, don't do that. But as soon as you relax, he threatens to do it again. So if this is already ingrained into your pattern, you've got to go back and sort of reboot your whole deal. And you need to work on that in the arena. And it's very hard habit for the rider to break. Uh, but when you're riding a horse and he's going the speed you want at a walk and you want to increase the speed, you just, you use alternating leg and seat aids in rhythm with the walk of the horse. And so if you're riding in a neutral position on that horse at a walk, you'll feel your legs naturally closing on the horse, right, left, right, left, right, left. Well, when I want to increase the walk, I just increase that rhythm, right, left, right, left, start pushing with the seat. That's called a driving seat. But when you are strolling down the trail and you feel, uh, first of all, Make sure if you are in that bad habit of pedaling your horse and you've already got this ingrained disobedience that you go back and fix that. If you fixed that and you're out riding on the trail and you got, you know, horse's head's down and he's doing a flat-footed walk and you feel him slow down, I would immediately bump him with my calves, right, left, right, left. Um, but don't fall into the pattern of pedaling him. So, and and do not expect him to maintain a speed that's unreasonable. You're just going to have to try to figure out of your horse's natural walk, you know, what, what's the most, the strongest walk you can reasonably expect it from him to sustain for a long period of time. And then it's your job to put him in that pace. Once you put him in that pace, it's his job to maintain it. So I hope that helps, helps you out a little bit. Our next question comes from Yolanda. My young four-year-old saddlebred looks at things, and on occasion he stops in his tracks to stare. Should I squeeze, kick him forward when he does it, just say no? Well, yes. Um, so first of all, let me just um, deconstruct that a little bit. Four-year-old saddlebred, so probably a hot-blooded horse. They're very sensitive, um, high-headed, looky kind of horses anyway. He's a four-year-old, so he's quite young, inexperienced probably. So I've talked a lot about the fact that I disallow horses from looking around when I'm riding or handling them from the ground. I, I just don't allow it. So I think it's especially important in trail riding that you do not allow the horses to look around excessively. When horses have a lot of anxiety, like these hot-blooded, high-headed horses often do, the more you let them look around, the more you're fueling their anxiety. So when you rule out all that looking around, you will be amazed at how much calmer the horse will be. Once he learns he, it's not an option for him to look around, he'll just put his head down and focus on what's in front of him or focus on you or focus on nothing. And that's really what you want that trail horse to do. So you're going to disallow that by riding with two hands. 
Um, keep a little bit of slack in your reins, but be prepared. So don't let your reins down so long that you cannot correct the horse. So if he picks his head up and turns his nose to the left, you're going to bump the right rein. If he picks his nose up and turns to the right, you're going to bump the left rein. But just bump the rein with enough pressure that he immediately brings the nose back to normal. And I want to be very consistent on my corrections. So I use the horse's point of shoulder as a guideline. So I let him look around um, with his nose between his shoulders as much as he wants. But as soon as he crosses that line, that imaginary line I project from his shoulders forward, um, I'm going to bump that rein. And if your timing is good and your pressure is adequate, within minutes, the horse will learn not to look around. So yes, by all means, nip that in the bud. And as far as that horse just stopping, that you have forced that horse into disobedience at that point. And so when I talk a lot, there's I've done some podcasts on this subject and it's all over my website about despooking your horse. But I, as I'm, if I'm approaching an area where I know my horse is going to be afraid to approach, I want to stop that horse before he stops himself because that way I maintain the horse's obedience and I maintain control. If I push my horse up onto a scary object before he's ready and he stops himself and refuses to go, I now have a disobedient horse to contend with. So if I know the situation is coming up, I will proactively stop the horse. I'll say, whoa, and uh, stop that horse, release the reins and pat him on the neck and say, what a good horse you are. You were obedient when I asked you to stop. Now let's just kind of think about this scary thing up here for a minute. No, you don't get to look around. No, you don't get to back up. No, you don't get to turn around. Let's just stop, take a deep breath and relax a minute. And now I'll ask you to go forward, but I may only ask him to go a few steps forward before I ask him to stop again, to give him time to take a deep breath, look that thing over um, and make sure he can go past it. So I would say there's no one right or wrong situation here because there could be so many different variables in terms of the horse that you're riding or the actual object that he's spooking at. You know, are we talking about something he's ridden by 20 times before and or are we talking about you know a mountain lion that just went by is it is it a reasonable thing for him to be speaking at or is it not so uh my horse's training level his experience level all of that his his obedience level all of that is going to come into play as i decide how to handle that but but remember at that moment, that horse just slams on the brakes and refuses to move. You are now riding a disobedient horse. And maintaining the horse's obedience is, is important. Our next question comes from Sherry. And she says, I have a 27-year-old who is losing sight in one eye. Things that never used to bother him now seem like pterodactyls. <laughs> I do a lot of trail riding and I always have used scary stuff on the trail to desensitize. He has always been pretty solid. I do the slow approach and retreat with him, but some days he just overreacts and all the flexing and disengaging doesn't seem to settle him down anymore. Thankfully, it doesn't happen very often. What can I do to help my old guy figure it out better? 
Well, look, Sherry, you know, reading that, and yeah, I read between the lines there, and I say, see, you got a good old horse, and you've done a lot with him, and he has given you a lot in the past. And I, I guess, you know, what comes to my mind is that maybe it's time to ask a little less of this horse. Um, my other concern would be what is going on with the sight in his other eye. If we are talking about a uveitis or something like that, because sometimes horses are gradually losing sight in their other eye. And so this is a pretty scary thing for a horse. And if like I had a horse that had lost vision in one eye and he was one of the best trail horses I, I ever owned. He was a school horse and a trail horse. And he, I remember, I'll never forget being out on the trail one day and he was riding in front of, the person riding him was riding in front of me. And I was watching how he placed his feet. And I watched him that whole trail ride enough to know he had no idea where he was placing his feet on the trail. He was just following the horse in front of him. He was on trails he had been on many times in his life. And I knew he had no idea where he was putting his feet because he would step right on top of rocks that would have been really easy to avoid stepping on. And when you watch horses in the rocks, they they avoid rocks when they can. And this horse would step right smack on top of one that, that almost like he aimed for it. And I could also tell by the way he placed his feet that he didn't really know where he was putting them. It very shortly became clear to me that this horse was almost completely blind and he was the only reason he was doing so well still was because we were doing stuff he had done all his, all his life. And so I question if your horse is telling you that maybe it's time. 27 years old is old. There was a time uh, when I was a kid, few horses lived that long. So that's old for a horse. We have you know, through modern advances in nutrition and healthcare, old horses look great, but they're still old horses. So maybe it's time we need to back off this horse a little bit. It sounds like you've already tried a lot. Uh, you, you talk about disengaging and, and laterally flexing him and all of that. Um, so some days you're having a problem, some days you're not. I just question if that's not something going on with the other eye or, or any, um, you know, it could be even if it's uveitis, this could be some painfulness there he's having too, which is sort of setting him off on some of these days. So I'd look at sort of backing off that horse a little bit. Uh, another thought would be to make sure you're, you're riding with a companion horse that he's used to being with, that he can track off of, uh, even, even maybe, you know, if you, if you're getting to the point where this horse is losing his vision entirely, you want to think about, uh, putting a bell on another horse that he can uh, buddy up with. So that would be my advice. I think horses, you know, sometimes we ask a little bit too much of our horses in old age and uh, we could be probably a little more empathetic and give these, sort you know, just give them a little easy trail rides, shorter trail rides around the place with company and try to avoid these really stressful situations. Okay. And we have time for one more question from Stephanie. I would love some suggestions on getting my hubby's 12-year-old gelding used to bike riders on the trail. That was fun. Not. Large groups of horses coming at him and generally more confidence building. 
We have been riding my bike around the pasture off and on in order to get him desensitized. I'm sure the neighbors think we have lost our minds. Okay, well, it sounds like you're doing the right thing, Stephanie. So bicycles are challenging. We have that problem a lot on the trails. We we share our, our great riding trails with mountain bikers. And a lot of times it's important for the horse owners to educate the mountain bikers on what the best thing for them to do for the horses is. They don't generally want to be rude. Um, they want to help and they want they want you to be safe on your horse, but they sort of in, instinctively do the wrong things like hold still and be quiet when they should be talking to the horse and, and um, you know, stopping and getting off their bike. And if they're approaching from behind, they should be making some noise. And, you know, so uh, part of it is these horses, these bicycles coming up silently on the horses. I always like to turn my horse around to face anything that's coming up behind him so that he is not unnecessarily startled. But I think being, um, I, I would get your horse, I wouldn't do it so much in the pasture uh, as I would actually take him out on the tra a trail somewhere and then have your husband bring a bike by or whatever. You can start at home in your pasture, getting him used to bikes, but you, you need to become location specific in that desensitizing where he's actually encountering it on the trail. Same thing with large groups of horses and riders. I talked about that a little bit earlier in my podcast, but you need, the horse needs to gain life experience. And it, in spite of the fact that he's 12 years old and you might think he would have gotten that experience already, obviously he hasn't. And so from, you know, we like to start hauling our young horses around at the earliest possible age. As soon as we start riding them, we start hauling them around and getting even to places where we don't need them to go just so they get the experience of being around strange horses, being in, in an overnight situation, being in a horse trailer, going on a trip. All of those things are important life experiences that a horse has to have. So just you, it's, you know, the easiest thing to do is to buy a horse that already has that kind of training experience on it. It's far easier and cheaper to buy that than to put it on a horse. But if you've already got the horse and he's lacking that, you're going to have to get some experience on that horse. Perhaps you're going to have to be the one riding the horse to work him through his anxiety about the bicycles or about the, the groups of horses. But this is what we call seasoning. And seasoning simply refers to the life experiences of a horse that allow that horse to function in many different locations and scenarios and become desensitized to a lot of different stimuli. So there's a little bit of work ahead of you, but, but you can get it done. Thank you everyone for a fun and interesting conversation about horse training and trail riding in particular. I hope you found some great tips for you and your horse for this upcoming trail season. Don't forget to check out my online membership programs. You'll find the solutions you need when you need them. You can subscribe to my full training library or enroll in a horsemanship short course or join my premier level of membership, the Interactive Academy, where you receive assignments and personalized coaching from me. Go to signin.juliegoodnight.com and register today. 
Next month, we'll tackle another horse training subject to help you find the solutions you need to help make your horse life better. Be sure to hit subscribe now so you won't miss a single episode. I enjoy sharing my horse care and training experience with you, and I appreciate all your feedback and suggestions. I love to hear what topics interest you the most. So if you have questions or podcast topics you'd like me to address, please message me on Facebook at Julie Goodnight or email me at podcast at juliegoodnight.com. Thanks again for your awesome comments and for the five-star ratings. It helps me out a lot and it helps us rise in the rankings so more horse lovers just like you and me find this podcast. I'm Julie Goodnight. Thank you for listening and don't forget, enjoy the ride. Sure to visit juliegoodnight.com slash academy for more in-depth training advice. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate your good review on iTunes so more horse lovers just like you can find my podcast. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to enjoy the ride.